Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. He mentions one more time he was about to suffer. They don't say anything about it. They don't address it. They don't deal with it. They just disregard it. Why? They couldn't understand it. And at this point, they're no longer even considering it. But he says, I'm not going to eat this Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, happy Friday, and welcome to part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Lord's Supper. We will be looking at verses 14 through 30 of Luke chapter 21, and we'll be looking intently at the Lord's Supper. So let's listen in. In any case, he knows this is their last meal together before his arrest. They don't get that. He's been trying to tell them, and for the past six months, again and again, as they headed toward Jerusalem, he'd say, we're going up, I'll be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, I'll be crucified, but I'll rise again the third day. And in the beginning, they'd say, what do you think he means by all that? I mean, he must be talking figuratively. I mean, how could he rule? How could he reign if he's going to suffer and die? They couldn't put it together. But note this in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He mentions one more time he was about to suffer. They don't say anything about it. They don't address it. They don't deal with it. They just disregard it. Why? They couldn't understand it. And at this point, they're no longer even considering it. But he says, I'm not going to eat this Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, if the original Passover brought freedom from death and freedom to serve and, and uh, you know, freedom from bondage, freedom to fellowship, freedom to worship. Well, well certainly that's what the Lord's Supper is, is meant to point us to. That Jesus' sacrifice for us means we're no longer s slaves of sin and death. We're, we're no longer destined to separation. And it means we can worship acceptably. We're accepted in Christ Jesus. It means that we have fellowship with the Father through His Son, Christ Jesus. It means that we can serve acceptably. Everything that He's planned and purposed for us becomes a reality in this new relationship with Christ. But when He talks about celebrating the Passover in the future, He says, I'll not no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, what could He mean by that? Well, some people trip on this, and I want to make sure you don't, and, and it's this simple. There will be another temple. We know that. There'll be a millennial temple. During the time of the millennial, some are saying, well, why would you need a temple? And what's the point of sacrifice if it was all pointing to Jesus in the first place? Well, it's really for the same reasons they, they sacrificed in the first place. You see, the Old Testament covenant, the covenant of law, we started talking about the covenant God made with Abraham, an unconditional covenant, later a covenant with Moses, it's a covenant of law, where it's if you will, I will, if you don't, watch out. And, and so it's a whole different thing. And so under that whole covenant, there were a series of feasts and festivals and sacrifices, morning and evening and monthly and then, you know, various yearly feasts and festivals. All of those were pointing to Jesus. So when we get into the millennium where we're told we'll rule and reign with Jesus on this earth, when that time comes, 
those who are celebrating these feasts and festivals in Jerusalem, they will be doing it in the very same way we're going to celebrate communion today. It will be looking back at the cross. It will be acknowledging his sacrifice. It's not a substitute for it. It is no longer a, a prelude to it. No, it's just, it's just an acknowledgement of it. And, uh, and it's actually a beautiful picture if you think about it. Spring is here. Summer's not far away. There'll be lots of barbecues. And, and unless you're a vegetarian, you like me are looking forward to all of that. And you need to know that when they would slay those lambs, they weren't just bleeding them and applying the blood. No, they were eating the lamb. They were barbecuing the thing. So it smelled good to God and it smelled good to them and it nourished and encouraged and created a, a fellowship among them. So the feast, the festivals, and the Passover specifically is fulfilled in Jesus, but will be celebrated in the future. Now, the Passover he celebrated with them would have been modeled after the, the, the Passover they had been celebrating since they came out of bondage in Egypt. It would begin with the host of the Passover feast blessing those who were gathered together and blessing the cup. Then they would pass it around and everyone would drink of the first cup. The wine itself was certainly fermented, but well watered down. There was no thought that they were going to get drunk, but they were going to enjoy the fruit of the vine. The table would be set. The Passover lamb would be put there. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs. There would be a sauce of dates and figs and raisins with vinegar. And they would dip and eat and they would pass another cup. And then the children would ask the question, what makes this day different than any other day? How come on those days we do these things, but on this day we only eat this? This would provide opportunity to teach the next generation what God had done for them in freeing them the first time. And of course, in pointing them ultimately to the freedom that we find in our Lord and Savior Jesus. So uh, another cup is passed after the, the um, unleavened bread and Passover lamb was eaten. A third cup would be passed. It's called the cup of blessing. Next came the fourth cup. It's called the cup of Hallel or joy. And by four cups, even of diluted wine, people are getting kind of happy. And, uh, and then they would recite Psalm 115 through 118. These were Hallel Psalms. They were worship Psalms. You should read them sometime. A fifth would be partaken of sometime, not always. It's called the great Hallel. And they would go back to Psalm 113 and read that to Psalm 118 or recite it. So, so understand, this is what they're doing. They're feasting with the Lord. They're tasting the bitter herbs that remind us of the bitterness of what happened and what brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're partaking of the Passover lamb to remember that they had to eat the lamb, not just slay it and apply the blood, but eat it. So they had strength for the journey ahead. And now he takes the cup and he gives thanks. Verse 17. And he says, take and divide it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes again. He's saying there will be a day. I will feast and fellowship with you again, but not until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A couple of thoughts related to the bread, and it couldn't be more perfect timing. Only God could work that out, by the way. If you're new to us, you may not get that. If you've been around a while, you know there's no way I'm organized enough to end up in Luke 22 on Communion Sunday, much less Luke 24, which is where we're headed 
on Resurrection Sunday. That's just the Lord. I don't know how many months ago we started this, but it's some months ago. In any case, he takes the bread. Bread was the most common substance ingested in that day. And I'd suggest probably the most common substance ingested today. In Israel or Egypt, where we were just visiting, it's pita bread. And, uh, you know, you go to Mexico, they've got the tortilla. You realize, hey, it's really the, the same thing. It might be made from corn. It might be made from flour. All over the world, bread is a common and, and well, it's, it's the everyday food of the poor. The rich eat it too. It's just a little fancier and it's stuffed with good stuff. But, but the bottom line is he takes something oh so common and now he elevates it. He takes something he knows everyone has access to and he says, I want to use this to point to me. So every time you eat this, you'll remember me. I think that his intention was to, to get us beyond the yearly feast of Passover to the daily celebration of just breaking bread together and, and saying, as those on the Emmaus Road did, that they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul will later write, we proclaim, we herald, we preach the Lord's death until he comes. We're acknowledging him. And so he says, take and eat. This is my body. Now, some of you have been raised as I was from my, well, age 13 to 16 in a, in a church where I was taught uh, in a catechism class that, that when you take the bread, it actually becomes the body of Christ. And when you take the, the cup, it actually becomes the blood of Christ. I don't believe that's the case at all. In fact, he was standing there before them holding the bread in his hand. It's hard for me to conceive of how he is the bread. And, but when he says, take and eat, this is my body, he, he's saying, I want you to see the reality behind this bread. It's, it's just a shadow. I'm the substance. It's just a picture. I'm the image. I'm the real thing. And, and listen, it's the same thing when it comes to, well, he calls us the body of Christ. We'll come back to it in another context in a minute. As the body of Christ, are we physically, literally, his body? No, he's seated in heaven making intercession for us, but he inhabits the praises of his people. He inhabits us individually and corporately. So we represent him in every part of us, every one of us, essential and important, existing to serve the other parts. Well, he takes bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. There, there's another picture here for us that as we prepare to share in communion is so, I think, essential. And that is the bread in his hands, blessed by him and then broken by him. Now, I like the picture of us being in his hands. I love the idea of being blessed by the Lord. The whole broken thing, not so fond of it. And, and let's be honest, how many of us can even think back to a time when we've recently, if ever prayed, Lord, break me. No, we pray, bless me and use me and, and but break me? Here's why this is important. God does his best work through broken vessels. God does his best work through, through humble people. God does his best work through people who know that, that without him, they can do nothing, but all things are possible through Christ Jesus who lives within us and works through us. So we can pray today, Lord, we recognize we're in your hands. And you're blessing us and using us. And, and Lord, we understand you need to break us, our will. Because if we pray, not my will, but yours, but in reality, we mean 
oh, just could you just bless what I want? Could you just bless what I'm doing? Could you just bless where I'm going? Well, in any case, he took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Takes us back. Pause with me for a moment and consider. A lot of people are hung up on the idea that there's an old covenant of law and a new covenant of grace. And I have no problem with that idea. I know it's a biblical idea. There was the law and there's grace. But we started with a covenant that predated the law by 430 years. And Hebrews makes the case that, that the covenant God made with Abraham could not be annulled by the law. No, the law came to convict us of our sin. And if we don't repent to actually condemn us, though that wasn't the intention. There was nothing wrong with the law, but there was a lot wrong with the people. And well, we have the same problem they do. It's that whole sin thing. Remember, Moses, as he's leading the children of Israel, he says, these people are prone to sin. God said, tell me about it. You know, I've been with them. But but here, here's the issue is that. God's covenant with Abraham was an unconditional covenant. And God's covenant with Moses was conditional. And, and the condition was you keep the law, I'll bless you. You disregard it or disobey it, I'll curse you. What's happened to Israel over the years? He's cursed them. Why? Because they disobeyed and got into idolatry and immorality and every other abomination. But listen, his covenant with Abraham has to be fulfilled. And God promised he'd restore Israel to the land and he has. And he promised he'd restore them to the Lord, and he will. Is the church Israel? Some say so. I say no. We're, we're not them, and, and, and it's better that we're not. He has a covenant with them. He has a plan for them. We are his church, washed and bought in the blood of Christ. And, and that's the only way they're going to come to the Father, too, by the way. But he's yet to deal with them. And, well, we'll be talking more about that in the days to come. Well, he takes the cup again after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. By the way, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, God promises a new covenant to make a new covenant with Israel and, he's, and with the house of Judah. He says, not with like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now listen, what he promises to them, he's already done for us. We're not about the 10 commandments. We're about the two commandments. It's not about 10 etched in stone. It's two written on our hearts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Oh, I skipped it and I can't. Behold, verse 21, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table and truly the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It's just a reminder that, that God knew exactly what was going to happen. Is he forcing Judah's hand? He doesn't need to. If God takes his hand off, he knows what we're going to do. We're going to do the worst, the worst we could conceive or others could conceive. It's but for the grace of God. Go you 
or I. But, but these guys ask the right question. And it's not as clear in Luke as it is in Matthew, but we'll read it in Luke and then I'll share it from Matthew. They begin to question, verse 23, among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing? What thing? Betray their Lord. But it says they begin to question among themselves, at least some doubt as to what they were actually thinking. Listen to Matthew as he said they were exceedingly sorrowful and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? I share that with you because my natural tendency, and I think many of yours as well, if the Lord was to say there's a traitor among us, it'd be, think, I saw him. I remember that guy. He's got to be the guy at the end right down here. And, or, or, yeah, I think it might be my husband. And, uh, you know, we tend to think someone else. They didn't think that way. They thought even though they'd been with him, even though he'd empowered them, even though he'd used them, they said, could it be me? And that's the question we need to ask as we prepare to share in communion today. Not... Could someone here betray him? But could I betray him? Could I forsake him? Could I, after all I've learned and all I've experienced and, and, and all the things God's done in and through my life, could I be guilty of this sin? Selling out my Lord for something temporal and, and useless. Well, they were exceedingly sorrowful. They were asking, Lord, is it I? And, and then we read in verse 24, and this makes no sense unless you've been tracking the entire time. There was a dispute among them as to which of them should become the greatest. Now, talk of the kingdom causes them to think about their position in the kingdom. And I understand this, and so do you. You know, when we were in Israel, they take a picture with the whole group. There were 480 people in that picture. So it's, you know, they have a, it's not your normal 8 by 10. I think we got a 9 by 11. Some were getting 11 by 15. I just know I don't have that wall space. But, but the bottom line is, when you take a picture being there's 20 people in it or 200 or 400, let me ask you, in total honesty, who do you look for in the picture first? Yeah, of course, yourself. We, we all do it. Why? Because we want to see, hey, where am I? And hey, who, well, look at somebody right behind me. And, uh, but, but we tend to be self-absorbed, selfish, self-focused. That's the essence of sin, by the way. It's just that we're more about us than others, that we care more about us than God's agenda for us. And so the issue here is he mentions the kingdom. He mentions the suffering. They disregard it. He mentions the kingdom and they're like, where am I going to be in it? Who will I be? Where will I sit? What will I do? And here's the tragic irony. By the end of this section, verse 30, he says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me ask you a question. Think about it for a minute. Which of them deserve to sit on any throne judging anybody? Not one of them. Only Jesus is worthy of a throne. Only Jesus is worthy of judgment. And by the way, we are going to rule and reign with him for that thousand years. And we don't deserve it either. So this idea that I need to work my way up or I need to be recognized or acknowledged or applauded or approved. Hey, listen, everything we do, we should be doing as unto the Lord. And we should be looking to him for affirmation, not each other looking to him for approval, not each other. We should never be thinking, well, nobody noticed me. He notices you. We're doing it for him. I had so many experiences where I've messed this one up. That's why I share it with you. Once when I was with Chuck in, in um, 
Greece, we were there at, um, I think it was in, in Athens, and there's this huge mountain, and there were all these people trying to get up on the top of it, and, and you know, I was pretty young back then, only 40s, you know, and I know if you're 20, you're like, 40s young, hey, when you're 59, 40s young, but Chuck, remember, he's much older than me, I'm 59, he's 83, and, and I see him over there, and he's helping all these people up the hill, and, and I go over there, and I start helping him, and I'm thinking, this is so cool, Chuck is watching me help people up the hill. It's like, I'm not thinking about Jesus or that I'm helping the people. I'm just wanting to impress Chuck. Why? Well, he's my pastor. I understand that the same thing can happen to you. But, but the point is, impressing me is nothing. It's easy to do. I'm easily impressed, easily amused. But impressing God, that's something. That's radical. And that's what we should be about. Well, we need to get to the end of this so we can break the bread and we can take the cup. So they ask, hey, which of us are going to be the greatest? None of you are going to be the greatest. Jesus is going to be the greatest. Well, they're thinking, yeah, but after him, which of us will be greatest? And, and uh, we think the same way. Well, he said to them, and he says to us, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. The younger, hey, that's just the position you're born in your family. If you're a firstborn in Israel, you get a double portion of the inheritance. You will rule and lead the family upon your father's death. And you have nothing to do with that. It's just that you happen to be firstborn. He says, if you're going to make a choice, choose to live as the younger. Why? Then you're not saying, how come he got the, the double portion? How come he has all the responsibility? How come he gets to make the decisions? He's saying, don't worry about it. Make yourself as the younger. And then he says, and he who governs as he who serves. He who governs in our context would be, if you have authority over people, serve those people. That's really, I, I saw it. We were at the Great Pyramid. And it's, it's, the base of the Great Pyramid is 13 acres. Now, if you go outside and you look at our parking lot and you, you know, do the whole circle around it, it's seven acres exactly. I like that number. We used to be 5.9, got 1.1 to solve that dilemma. There's no 5.9s in the Bible. And I'm like, we got to have seven, Lord. And he, and he worked it out. But we have seven acres. The, the Great Pyramid is 13 acres at its base and it goes up you know like this you've probably seen it most of us have and, and the idea being there's there's this one little thing at the top that represents the the pharaoh of the day and and all of this supports him but in the kingdom of God you invert that pyramid and and it's Jesus he's the pinnacle yeah but he's at the bottom serving and supporting the whole body and if you really want to get close to him and be used mightily by him then you work your way down not up because the further up you go, the further away you are from him and for, from the heart of God. So he says, the one who governs has to serve. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or he who serves? This is a no-brainer. You go to a restaurant, there's someone serving, you're the customer. At least when I was growing up, they used to say the customer's always right. I don't think they're passing that along anymore. <laughs> it's like, hey, you get what you get, you know? the service, the food, whatever. But, but, but he says the one who, who serves in his economy is the greatest. Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I'm among you as one who serves. He's our example. He exhorts us to follow in his position. But you are those who've continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father 
bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Passover feast was a fascinating event, full of many details, each one having meaning. Now, as Pastor Sam pointed out in our text, Peter and John had gone ahead and seen to the preparation of all the details, and I'm sure not a thing would have been missed. One of the toasts that they made was called the Cup of Plagues. It was to remind them of the cost of their freedom. Now, had Jesus followed tradition, which I'm sure he did, he would have dipped his finger in wine and dropped 10 drops of wine onto a plate, each one representing one of the plagues, and a reminder to the Israelites of the cost of their redemption. Now, I have to wonder, when the disciples gathered around the cross as Jesus was crucified, would they have been able to see drops of blood falling from his fingers? Would they remember him doing that at the Last Supper? Would they have made that connection? Would this be an image that reminded them of the cost of their salvation? The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.